From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, coming back in a style hard like Pogs, I hope. I put a lot of money in the Pog train, so. We are your podcast hosts and Pog sellers, should anyone be looking, Taylor and Chelsea, and today is a Chelsea episode that is full of surprises for everybody, including me and possibly Chelsea, always. in fact. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna let, let her take it. Yeah, that's me. You got Pogs? To sell you, you buy it yeah probably okay well the email <laughs> journey to the fringe at gmail.com and uh <laughs> yeah, let yeah. us know okay. what you're willing I'll to pay that. per kilogram i hope you got slammers okay here i am to talk to you about stuff and things now that the business is aside we live in canada and by we i mean taylor and i not you well it could be you as well but you may remember canada from such things as inventor of basketball for some reason House hippos. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to ask. Are you going to go through our heritage minutes? <laughs> Other heritage moments that I can't remember right now. Those ones Explosion in Halifax. Yeah. But also, cheesies being polite, mostly. We do have our dickheads, though. Maple syrup, poutine, Caesars, Wendigo, delicious not watered down beer, Wayne Gretzky, the Shag Harger UFO incident. The Journey to the Fringe episode, what are those horse boys up to? And likely other things. There's other Canadian things, I'm sure. Yeah, like the I second don't... What Are Those Horse Boys Up To episode, which seems to get forgotten by most. It was the Mr. Hold Big on. episode. Right, yes. I didn't know that was a part two. Also, that episode is Canadian, unlike the other fucking ones. <laughs> Not Canadian. Little known fact. Today I'm going to talk to you about some other Canadian things that I didn't just list, and these things have yet to be really covered on our podcast yet. With that being cheesies, just kidding, cheesies have already made an appearance on our podcast. Yes. So unfortunately, after that buildup, it is not cheesies, and it is hauntings. And we stopped eating so, cheesies because uh, yeah. snacking didn't sit well with the <laughs> test I audience. Think I, just, I think I just had an disappointing intro because who doesn't love cheesies i i just have to say they are not the same as cheetos cheetos they are not suck in compared to cheesies that's right i'm gonna talk to you today about some famous canadian hauntings and before i get into these hauntings there is one thing that you must know about canadian hauntings that if you don't know everybody ought to know and you can just assume these going forward in your life that you know these about canadian hauntings one that is that every fairmont is haunted does not matter which one actually it's only if it's an old fairmont i don't think the newer ones are but we do have a bunch of old ones in canada because they used to belong to the railroad and those ones are all haunted fairmont Banff spring Jasper Park Lodge, Hotel McDonald, the Fairmont Vancouver. There's other ones that I don't know the east coast of Canada or Manitoba. They're there. They're haunted for sure. All haunted. Second one, old spaghetti factories. Those fucking love it there. <laughs> they're also all haunted. Well, yeah, they're old. Those are the two things. I just I thought that old was just part of the name. It turns out no. Okay. Well, mate, those might be the two old things in Canada. Okay. We only have those two things that are old. So going forward with your life, now you know that. Also, I don't know about the old spaghetti factory. Is that a Canadian thing 
or... I could not tell you. No, I don't know either. But they exist, they're haunted, but they're th those... They're haunted. Reasons unknown or known, I don't know. So let's get into some haunts. I also learned a great deal researching this episode. First up, we got the Baldoon mystery. And that's coming to us straight out of Wallaceburg, Ontario. Which doesn't roll off the tongue like Compton does. Unfortunately, it's really trying to make it sound nice, but it just didn't. Just so we're all on the same page, yeah. the Old Spaghetti Factory, or OSF as they call it on their website, is 100% Canadian. It is! Okay, yes. so there we have it. That's two haunted Canadian things. So according to the tale for, what am I talking about again? The Baldoon Mystery. And I did bet on Taylor looking that up for us, so thank you, Taylor. You're welcome. According to the tale, dating back to around 1829, the family farm of local resident John T. McDonald was disturbed by a haunting attributed to a curse from a witch. Not to be confused with the Skinwalker people. Or the Hotel McDonald, weirdly enough. We're talking, yeah, <laughs> we're talking Canadian here. Skinwalkers don't exist in this territory. The haunting was akin to typical poltergeist-type activity. Unexplained sounds would be heard by the McDonald family at all hours of the day and night. They heard noises of what sounded like, quote, many men preparing for war marching through their kitchen, end quote, that would abruptly stop when they investigated. Hey. Sir, what province are they in? Ontario. Okay, okay. There were at least some minimal wars there. Because I was going to say, if this is Vancouver, like, there's never been a marching army there. No, this is Ontario, so there potentially could have been. They saw bullets, stones, and lead pellets rain down upon the farmer's home and come through the windows. In regards to these, family members would often collect the bullets and rocks and sometimes leave unique markings on them. They were then brought off the property and even deposited in nearby creeks. They just wanted to get rid of them, of course. Only a few days later, the same bullets and rocks with the unique markings would appear back in their house. After replacing the glass panes of their windows so often, John McDonald had a fuck enough of that and he boarded up the windows. Thereafter, instead of glass shattering, the family heard the constant thumping of things hitting the outside of the boarded up windows. Although the bullets and rocks were collected and redeposited almost daily, no one could explain how they showed up time and time again. Chairs would slide across the floor on their own. Fires were witnessed starting around the house all the time, inexplicably, might I add on that one. Not just, you know, someone starting a fire and then being like, not again. Oh, and can't forget this one. While a baby was sitting in a wooden cradle, it suddenly started to rock violently from side to side, and three men rushed over and joined in an effort to stop it. Although they used every bit of strength, the rocking continued as if being forced by a powerful unseen hand. The cradle continued to rock, unaided, when the men backed away in terror. The McDonald's finally decided to take action and hopefully address the paranormal incidents. They first discussed the matter with a local priest who was experienced in performing exorcisms. Although he applied his best efforts, there was no change in the constant barrage of terror. According to some sources, the McDonald family eventually met with a woman gifted with the powers of second sight. That's not a, a word you hear thrown around all the time anymore. They traveled a long distance to hear her perspective on what was haunting the family. She apparently postulated that the strange incidents were due to a curse being placed on the property by an old woman. Some had said that the McDonald's were involved in a minor spat with the woman and her sons when they originally purchased the property in the early 1820s, so perhaps she was the cause of their misfortune. I don't know, I don't see a curse being... Maybe I hold my comments until the end here. <laughs> we still got a little bit to go. 
With the passage of time, it's somewhat unclear how the events unfolded. Some folklore suggests that the McDonald's performed a ritual to rid them of the poltergeist, and the incident suddenly stopped. According to some retellings, the seer suggested that the McDonald's needed to shoot a black goose with a silver bullet, as the old woman had used witchcraft on the bird, and it was a source of the activity. That's right. The McDonald's. So, wait, I just need to. So, Canadian geese have been like terrorizing us for generations. That makes so much sense. Those guys they, are assholes. Yeah, they are. They are like clearly the spawn of witches and Satan himself. They're the Canadian skinwalkers. <laughs> that be. <laughs> Oh, we know that... came up with the skinwalkers. No, it didn't. They're the fucking were-goose. <laughs> you imagine if one showed up for work? <laughs> just like coffee, just like waddling in. And he's an asshole. He's not even oh, like... He... Oh, yeah. No, 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 no good. I would... I would quit. I would quit if a goose showed up in a suit, like walking in there. So the McDonald's followed the advice and shot the black goose in the wing. Shortly after, the family saw the old woman with her arm in a sling. These actions apparently prompted the end of the strange occurrences, but the exact line between the fact and fiction has become somewhat blurred over the years. This was quite a long time ago. That and the home burned down in 1831. So who's to say what happened there? That is one of I, Canada's greats. See, I blame the geese for that burning down. It does it does provide a whole new perspective on it once the geese get brought up. Yeah, That's well, especially, sure. like, you can explain every single one of those phenomenon through those fucking geese. It's true. The marching? The guns? It, the marching? The dropping the of bullets? bullets? <laughs> the poltergeist sounds? They're assholes. They're absolute assholes. Yeah. The we don't want them to be called Canadian. <laughs> The collective assholishness and rage that Canada has given up for its peaceful and politeness was distilled into our geese. It's true. They're the complete embodiment of the exact opposite of the politeness we carry around with us. Okay, so what was I going to say? I can't remember. Moving on. (laughs) The next one is the Great Amherst Mystery. And these are famous Canadian hauntings. You can get tours of most of these places, or at least the towns that these are in, which I would be really interested in if I ever went to the East Coast ever. Sadly, I have not. Really hard to do. It is. It's expensive and it's far. It's far. Yeah, just I'm not gonna uh, lie. Yeah, it's just a big country. As a Canadian living on the West Coast, it's cheaper to go to Europe than it is to go to the East Coast of Canada. It just and is. you're all you're almost there by the time you get to the East Coast of Canada. You might as well just keep going. And I'm I am more interested in going to Europe. No offense, Eastern Canada, but I am more interested in going to Europe than East Coast Canada. <laughs> Yeah, I could say some stuff, but I'm not going to. Also, some European <laughs> listeners, at least. Yeah. Let's not offend our own types. So, Great Amherst Mystery. I didn't actually know about this one until recently. All because a friend of mine moved super close to where this took place and told me about it. Turns out, fairly famous haunting. And not just famous within Canada, surprisingly, for I've never heard about it before that time. And I grew up looking at Canadian ghost stories, so I'm not sure how these mostly all escaped me that I'm focusing on on this podcast. I feel like the horse ghost just got too much spotlight growing up in Edmonton. (laughs) And that one's in the Fairmont. Yeah. (laughs) 
And that just goes back to the major ghost facts you need to know about Canada. So this one's another surprisingly old relic. We travel back to the 1870s where we arrive at a cottage that once stood in Amherst, Nova Scotia at the corner of Princess and Church streets, maybe. I don't know what else other option it would be. Where the young Esther Cox lives with her family, consisting of her married sister, Olive Teed, and her husband, their two kids, a brother, sister, and her brother-in-law's brother. So it's a crowded place, consisting of eight, including Esther. And Essie, I'm going to call her Essie from now on, probably, maybe, I don't know, probably don't. And a man named Bob McNeil were taking an evening carriage ride into the Tantramar Marsh. Trigger warning coming up here. Some say she maybe just fast forward 30 seconds or so if that applies some say he was she was held up at gunpoint by mcneil or sexually assaulted either way something fucked up happens and mcneil leaves town the next day not long after that back at the house strange things are happening to essie there were knocking well maybe not just ness oh no i just called her nessie That's the strange thing. She became Scotland. <laughs> strange things start happening in the house. There were knockings, bangings, rustlings in the night. And one night in particular, the young woman started convulsing and her body swelled up. On a separate occasion, a box of fabric moved by itself from under Essie's bed and flew into the air. The frightened family called in a doctor. During her visit, bedclothes moved, scratching noises were heard, and the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appeared on the wall by the head of Esther's bed. The following day, the doctor administered sedatives to Esther to calm her and help her sleep, whereupon more noises and flying objects manifested themselves. Attempts to communicate with the spirit resulted in tapped responses to questions. As always, I feel like that's how they always respond. If you got toes, at least. I was just going to say, cracking of toes is what they prefer to use to communicate. The phenomena continued for some months and became well known locally. Visitors to the cottage included clergymen. They heard banging and knocking and witnessed moving objects, often when Esther herself was under close observation. In December, Esther fell ill with diphtheria. No phenomena was observed during the two weeks she spent in bed, nor during the time she spent recuperating afterwards at the home of a married sister in Sackville, New Brunswick. However, when she returned to Amherst, the mysterious events began again, this time invoking the outbreak of fires in various places in the house. Fires again! Maybe that's something that has to be attributed to Canada as well. Esther herself now claimed to see the ghost, which threatened to burn down the house unless she left. In January 1879, Essie moved in with another local family, but the manifestations around her continued and were witnessed by many people, some of whom conversed with the ghost by questioning the rapt answers. Some were curious and sympathetic, Others believe Essie herself to be responsible for the phenomena, and she met with some hostility locally. Esther was frequently slapped, pricked, and scratched by the ghost, and on one occasion, she was stabbed in the back with a clasp knife. I wonder if they ever entertained the fact that it might be a goose. I was just going to say, because again, these are all things a goose can and will do to you. (laughs) I can't argue with that logic. I can't rule it out at this time. 
interest in the case grew as news spread, and in late March, Essie spent some time in St. John, New Brunswick, where she was investigated by some local gentlemen with an interest in science. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most nondescript. It was official. (laughs) I love science. Let me take a look at you. Look like nondescript. The Chignetto Post proclaims, quote, this town has a mystery at last, end quote. I guess they were looking for one. <laughs> yeah, the most exciting thing to ever happen. A nondescript group of men who love science have visited town. Yes. <laughs> They're not even good at science. They just like it. By now, several distinct spirits were apparently associated with Essie and communicating with onlookers via knocks and rappings. Bob Nickel was the original ghost, and he claimed to have been a shoemaker in life, and others identified themselves as Peter Cox, a relative of Essie's, and Maggie Fisher. Bob Nickel, Peter Cox, and Maggie Fisher. After the visit to St. John, Essie spent some time with the Van Ambergs, friends with a peaceful farm, opposed to an unpeaceful farm, near Amherst, and then returned to the Teats Cottage in the summer of 1879, whereupon the phenomena broke out again. It was at this point that Walter Hubble arrived, I think we'll learn who he is, attracted by the publicity surrounding the case, and moved into the Teague Cottage as a lodger to investigate the phenomena. Not sure what his credentials are or why he's there yet. Hopefully we learn. Hubble spent some weeks with Essie and her family and reported having personally witnessed moving objects, fires, and items appearing from nowhere and claimed that he saw phenomena occur even when Essie herself was in full view and obviously unconnected with them. He was also claimed to have witnessed attacks on Essie with pins and other sharp objects and to have seen her in several of her fits of extreme swelling and pain. What was he witnessing with her getting stabbed? I stabbed. feel like yeah, I feel like even if you like science, you got to stop somebody from getting stabbed. Was he just witnessing like a pin in the middle of the air like rocking her? That's so weird. He communicated with the various named spirits by rapping and listed three others: Mary Fisher, Jane Nickel, and Eliza McNeil, who were also manifesting themselves as part of the events holy moly with hubble's professional help how what is he a professional in well i'd say to myself because i wrote this all down (laughs) you have to assume that it's in space maybe he's a guy who also likes science and he goes on to found a telescope ah and then it's just a given like where would i know this guy from you're right yeah that has to be it esther cox embarked on a speaking tour attracting audiences who paid to see her and hear her story however she met with some hostile reactions and after she was heckled one night and a disturbance broke out the attempt was abandoned she returned to amherst once more working for a man named Arthur davison she gave up <laughs> it's not often that we have somebody whose career ends due to a riot they started <laughs> This is a Canadian story after all. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so she's working for Arthur Davison, but after his barn burned down, he accused her of arson and she was convicted and sentenced to four months in prison, although she was released after only one. That's a Canadian thing as well. After this, the phenomena ceased for good. Esther Cox subsequently married twice, having a son by each of her husbands. She moved to Brockton, Massachusetts, or however the hell you say that, with her second husband and died on 
November 8, 1912, age 52. That's all the information I'm giving you on that. If you want to go look at debunking or whatever on it, by all means. Yeah, and that's right it. during that era of seances and whatnot that the Fox sisters inhabit, too. It, didn't it remind you of that yeah, a lot? Yeah. Even, especially with the rapping. Oh, yeah, for sure. It almost reminded me exactly of that, but super famous one in Canada as well. And with that, we're now going to move on to another one. We're going to go way up north. And I did not know about this place. And it is so freaking cool. I might potentially want to do, or one of us might want to potentially do a bigger episode on this one. Because this one, I had no idea about. And it is it's so cool. I already said that. So I can shut up now and just talk. This one is the Nahanni National Park Reserve in the Northwest Territories. Is this the Headless Men one? Yeah. Did you know about it? I vaguely know about it. Yeah. Emerson Peters does a pretty good reflection on it. Well, it's probably not going to be that good, but okay. here we are. Taylor foreshadowed that for us. Pretty good. This park, beautiful park, if you look up pictures, it can only be accessed by a boat or float plane. Its impenetrable forest and mountains may be the primary reason Nahani sees limited visitors. I'm going to say it's the only access by boat or float plane and the fact that it's so up north. Yeah, but, like, geese don't even fly this far north, I'm pretty sure. I would think not with a name like this. I'm pretty sure they... Or maybe they do, and this is where they originate from. Could be. <laughs> they don't go here, they fly out of it. <laughs> but to finish my sentence, perhaps it's also because the park is shrouded in a macabre legend, befeeding of its menacing landscape. I mean, it's a good reason, but I still feel like it's pretty fucking remote. So, again, major reason. The supernatural lore has earned Nahani the moniker, quote, the Valley of the Headless Man, and many believe this UNESCO World Heritage Site to be haunted, also home to the Denny indigenous tribes who dwelt there for many centuries. The Denny's oral histories passed down generations speak of another tribe who lived in the park called the Naha. The Denny tell that the Naha were a warlike tribe living in the high mountains and descending into the lowlands to raid and kill. They became the main foes of the Dene peoples and were greatly feared by them. The name Nahani itself is of the Dene origin and means the river of the land of the Naha people. The Dene state that the Naha people simply vanished at one time, ceasing their raids and disappearing altogether. Mystery surrounds these so-called Naha, but no trace of them has ever been found. So far, they're only found in the oral stories told by the Denny. Could they have migrated elsewhere, succumbed to a disease, died out, or simply stayed in the Nahani River Valley to this very day hiding in plain sight? Some speculate that might be so. This mystery would likely have died out quickly, being dubbed just another legendary story of an indigenous tribe, as we do. But several eerie deaths and disappearances within the Nahani Valley achieved the opposite result. The mysteries surrounding this place were only fueled further and Nahani became the focus of many mystery hunters. Most of this focus was on the special place within the valley, one called the 200 Mile Gorge. The Denny natives speak of an unknown evil dwelling there and few ever enter it, especially because of the events that transpired there. For it's the 200 Mile Gorge that gained the grizzly epithet of the Valley of the Headless Man. So it's specifically in there, not just the Nahani National Park Reserve. It's a specific area in the reserve. 
When British writer and explorer Raymond Patterson set out to the Nahanni region from Fort Smith in 1927, he received an anonymous piece of advice, according to Neil Harding in his book Nahanni, The River of Gold, River of Dreams, quote, men vanish in that country and down the river, they say it's a damn good country to keep clear of. Lots of good gold there, though. Lured by reports of gold in the area, brothers Frank and Willie McLeod journeyed from Edmonton, Alberta to the Nahanni region in Nahanni Range in 1904. Traveling with primitive gear, they traversed hundreds of kilometers by train, boat, and foot during a numbingly cold winter until they reached Gold Creek. Their efforts were rewarded that year and they returned to their home in Fort Laird with gold in hand. However, not satisfied, the brothers made a second expedition to the Nahanni Range in 1905 and they never returned. Nothing was heard from Frank and Willie until brother Charlie McLeod led the search in the park in 1908, where he discovered two skeletons at their camp on the river's edge in the vast valley. Their heads had been severed and one man lay with his arm outstretched towards his gun. The blankets were thrown across his brother as if he had leaped suddenly from the bed, read reports. It wasn't just the McLeod brothers who died or went missing in the park in the early 20th century. Scottish engineer that had been traveling with them was never seen again and Yukon prospector Martin Jorgensen met a similar fate in 1917. He had sent news home that he had struck it rich in the area. Not long after his decapitated skeleton was found outside his cabin, which had been burned to the ground, spawning rumors of headhunters in the valley in Canadian newspapers. Numerous other reports from the RCMP confirmed similar deaths, and a good number of people have simply vanished without a trace after setting foot in the park. Around the same time in the park's history, a series of unexplained plane crashes earned an expanse of mountains the name of the Funeral Range, which borders the ominous Hell's Gate Rapids. These seemingly supernatural deaths are only a part of the mystery that Nahanni National Park is steeped in. Since the first Denny people settled there 10,000 years ago, the lore of hidden tropical gardens, mythical creatures, and spirits hiding in the park's hot springs and tufa mounds abounded. Quote, I once heard a Dencho chief tell stories of an ancient giant of Gontha who would cook his food in the springs, says Joel Hibbard, owner of Nahanni Wild. Whether giants roam the park or not, the hot springs do hold special cultural significance for the Decho, who leave offerings like tobacco at the springs for good luck. It's said if the springs are full, it's an auspicious sign. Later in the 19th century, UFO sightings and other strange lights were reported in the park, and to this day, fringe bloggers obsessed with cryptids and recount stories of the Amphicinidae. I'll leave it at that. A predatory bear-dog hybrid that went extinct in the Pliocene period, prowling the valley as well as the signs of Bigfoot activity in forbidden parts of the park. Certain areas within the Nahanni are closed to visitors because of their sensitive ecosystems or cultural significance for the indigenous Denny people. But some say the restrictions are much about containing the park's supernatural forces as they are about keeping people out. That's the Nahanni. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that, the Denny people actually print this on the back of their menus in all Denny's restaurants. I always wondered what that was there for. Yeah. I think that would be a good episode to do in the future. Of course, these are all just... Oh, yeah, just it'll be on the list, but, thing. you know, yeah. it's a Hopefully it will. Point. Hopefully I'll get around to writing it on there, but you never know. Email us if you want to see it to ensure that maybe we write it down if you say it. Anyhow, last but not least, I had to include this one, Dead Man's Island, Vancouver, which is a 3.8 hectare. 
H A. Hector, yeah. Yeah. Island, which is connected to Stanley Park via a short timber structure bridge. At low tide, it's accessible as well, although it's not open to the public. I know, I got really excited. One of Vancouver's first settlers, John Morton, set foot on the island in 1862. He was very charmed by it. It didn't take him long before he discovered hundreds of red cedar boxes lashed to the upper boughs of the trees. Of course, Morton wanted to see what was in them, and he poked into one of the boxes. It fell apart. In them, he found the skeletal remains of a dark-haired person. Very descriptive. The Squamish people, a First Nation tribe, used this island, which they called, I'm just going to read the translation, island, to bury their people in trees. He also told Morton the island had been the site of a brutal massacre. A long time ago, northern and southern nations fought over who could claim the island. The southern nation had kidnapped 200 women, children, and elders at some point, and the northern decided to trade 200 young warriors for these hostages. The 200 young warriors were brutally slaughtered by the southern nation. They didn't stand a chance. The next morning, after the dead had been taken rid of, the southern nation returned to the spot where the warriors had died. They were shocked to see hundreds of flaming fire flowers right where their bodies have fallen. Sorry, that just reminds me of Super Mario, but... It does. Actually, that paints a very vivid picture that you say that. The Southern Nation immediately left the island in pure terror. After hearing the story, Morton too decided to leave the island. He believed it was cursed. By 1870, the tree coffins were taken down and the remains were buried in Stanley Park. The island didn't have a real purpose after Morton left and the settlers started using the island as a burial site for their people. 21 victims of the Great Vancouver Fire of 1886, Canadian Pacific Railway workers who died during construction and residents of Moodyville, Hastings Sawmill, and the Granville town site were all buried there. It's not that big of an island. This was done until Mountain View Cemetery, the only cemetery in the city of Vancouver, was built in 1887. But even after 1887, bodies were buried there. And that had to do with the outbreak of a smallpox epidemic in 1888. From 1888 to 1892, Deadman's Island became a quarantine site for people suffering from highly contagious smallpox disease. Few people survived the horrible illness and those who died from it never left the island. You always got to find an island for something like that. I feel like we've talked about that before. Yeah, Peninsula just doesn't cut it. No, I mean, this isn't technically an island. There is a passage to it at low tide. Yeah, low tide, though. Yeah. So technically, yes. It's the time. It's an island. It's true. (laughs) Sometimes it's not. (laughs) Dead Man's Island became the site of a long conflict between 1899 and 1930. Theodore Ludgate leased the island from the federal government in 1899 and wanted to place his lumber mill on the island. Mayor James Garden and some other officials assumed the island was included with the original Stanley Park land. Ludgate didn't want to waste time waiting for the official clear, and he and some of his men set off to the island to clear the old Squamish houses and trees. The mayor was one step ahead of him, though he was already waiting on the island with the police. He was arrested, but succeeded in taking down trees and houses later. In 1911, he finally won his case, but Ludgate was unable to meet with the terms of his lease, and he lost the island to the government in 1930 anyway. The island was abandoned again until 1943, then it became the home of the HMCS Discovery, Her Majesty's Canadian ship. Not sure what the fuck that even means. Well, it's kind of like HMS. It's just like you put it in the name of ships. That's all they are. You know, like you'll see like the SS, the HMS. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just. It sounds just like it might HMCS. be. Oh, it says right here. Yeah. The Vancouver's Naval Reserve Division was housed on the Stone Frigate, which is strategically located on the island. So it must have something to do with that. Sounds official. Today, this is still the case. Unfortunately, the island is closed to the public. I'm making sure you know this because I brought it up more than once. Most of the paranormal phenomena are experienced by reservists. Normally, the island is unoccupied at night, but on some occasions, naval personnel spent a night or two there, and everyone who stayed over on the island experienced strange things. Building number one seems to be the most active paranormal spot. Those who spend the night there claim to have heard footsteps in the rooms above them. They even have heard furniture move. When they went up to check, no one was there. They thought it was someone of security, but later discovered they were on the island alone. Some reservists have seen full apparition bodies, some heard disembodied voices, and others have witnessed a strange glow through the trees, which formed into a human shape. Which that one is kind of the most disturbing. Not that I wouldn't be scared shitless if anything was happening if I was alone on the island by myself, but probably most disturbed if I saw a glowing human come through the shit through the which again I can meet with another Simpsons reference of Mr. Burns going through his treatments. But he only brings peace and love. He only brought love, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And those are my hauntings for Canada. There are more, but I was really taken by the Nahani. I'd never heard about it, and I thought it sounded super cool. Yeah, it is. And frankly, the the weird thing you got to run into and wrestle with in your mind as a Canadian is whether or not these are just famous goose encounters. Because we we live in a goose-infested wasteland that is Canada. And and we also live in a fear of the goose-infested wasteland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, most other countries don't have to deal with this when they're talking about their famous hauntings, but that's just (laughs) our little piece of Canadiana. So really, you learn three things about Canadian hauntings to take forth with you on this journey we call life. And to the fringe. (laughs) (laughs) We also call it that. Yeah. And with that, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh